God, I remember there, there have been some really rainy, gross Mardi Gras, huh? Holy shit. We called that one in 2014 soggy gras. That one was so bad. <laughs> it was like 35 degrees, <laughs> rainy. And rainy. Oh my God, I took Hector out. I had made him a costume and stuff with flames. He was a messenger, right? He was like, and he had like, he had like flames on his head and stuff. His flames got so soggy. It was really like sad. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, a massive project to restore marshland is underway in the Barataria Basin, an area that has lost over 276,000 acres of land in the past 90 years. In the space of a few days, Lafayette Academy was told it would close, then its fate was reversed, and parents and teachers are still trying to catch their breath. And a parade celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. returned to its historic route on St. Claude Avenue this year in a deliberate attempt to restart the celebration on that route after it faded away post-Katrina. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus. Hey, Delaney. Hi, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Photojournalist LaChance Perry's here. Hey, LaChance. Hey, everybody. And Lens Editor Katie Rechtal. Hey, Katie. Hey, how are you doing? Good. So Delaney and LaChance, we're going to start with your story. In Plaquemines Parish, there's a huge restoration project underway right now. After decades of land loss due to erosion and subsidence, tell us about the area and how the erosion happened in the first place. So coastal Louisiana has been losing land for a long time. Um, and that has to do with how we have made the, how we have been managing flood control. The Mississippi River used to meander back and forth, going west and then going east, filling its banks, regularly trying to reach the shortest route to the Gulf of Mexico. In the path, that was determined by people. The flood protection levees have have put the Mississippi River into this a, a certain path and they have cut it off from the marshes that built the, the state of Louisiana. So now those marshes are not, get, they're not getting the sediment, they're not getting the fresh water that used to come from the river and the land is subsiding, the land is sinking back into the Gulf. The other thing, Delaney, um, I was noticing in the CPRA filings about each project that when they did an aerial photo of the areas that they were going to fill in that they noted that the biggest land erosion actually took place right around um, the time that the oil and gas people started doing exploration in that area where they cut areas to the marsh for pipelines and for routes to the pipelines and to do work and those routes um had salt water come in and kill the marsh. Yes. So um, the flood control was kind of the start of Louisiana losing its land. It really stopped the marshes from growing. But once the oil and gas industry came in, they cut lines, dug channels to lay down pipe and to navigate their ships around the bay or around the basin. And those... Um, channels allowed salt water to come in and, and more quickly kill the marsh. Um, there was also the Deep Horizon oil spill in 2010, which 
spread a lot of oil around this area, the Barataria Basin specifically, killed a lot of wildlife, killed a lot of plant life, and really Hmm. was devastating for the marshes in this area. Okay. So it sounds like industry took precedence for for decades but do you do you know when um calls for protection and restoration started to happen and when the coastal protection and restoration authority began sincere efforts to try to mitigate this damage and repair some of the lost land the most serious efforts you know and the founding of the um Coastal Protection Restoration Authority came after Hurricane Katrina. Mm. Um, And so that natural disaster really did show not only the the weaknesses in the human engineering along the river, but also what that engineering had done to the surrounding ecosystems and how the loss of those ecosystems could affect the people who were living in these parishes. Okay. I really like how you frame it, that you, you start with, and Lachance, you took a great picture of, of the the cruise, and you talk about the sound, and I can, I can take myself there by the way you write it, that I can hear the sound of the cruise, the big trucks moving, and but it's not like the sound that they've, they're used to hearing. They're used to hearing these crews digging pipe and, and doing what ultimately will result in damage to the coast, they're actually repairing it. So tell us what the project is and uh, what they're doing, what they're hoping to do. It's hard to imagine from land because this work site is only accessible by water. So (laughs) to get there, we had to get on a boat from a launch site and and be taken to this work site. Um, But once we got there, it was really incredible because I, you know, if I didn't know that this, that area had been open water only a few months ago, it would have been very hard to believe Mm. because we stepped out onto very solid feeling land, land that had um, little portable buildings on it and had all these marsh buggies driving around and all these big construction vehicles that are built to be able to maneuver that sand and that water, that marsh environment, and to move it around. Um, But it was incredible to be there in the last month that they were taking the sand, that they were dredging the sand and dumping it into this space because there was already so much sand that had accumulated. You really could feel the land under our feet, underneath these giant construction vehicles and how it had already settled and created um, created new land. Um, and so it was remarkable to see these pipes being moved. Um, and they were being moved in real time while we were there. We saw different spots of the marsh receiving sediment at different times. And then the big construction vehicles would come in to move it around to make it more of a a flat surface. And it was just remarkable Mm. to see. So, and the, the main impetus is storm surge protection for, New Orleans and other other populated areas? Yes, New Orleans and Plaquemines Parish, primarily. Okay, and who is undertaking all this work? So this is a project done by the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority with funding specifically from the Natural Resource Damage Assessment and the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. And that is specifically for um, the Grand Chenier marsh reconstruction project. There are a number of other marsh reconstruction projects that are going on in the Barataria Basin that have 
funding from other places, but are still are all under the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority's larger umbrella. And then if you want to get even more specific, there are sediment diversions. There's a lot of different kinds of projects going on around this basin. Put it in perspective, this project, in the scale of how much land has been lost, what does this particular project hope to restore? Well, in the in the scale of land that has been lost, you know, going back to the 1930s, yeah. this is tiny. Yeah. Um, but I the hope here is that we're going to keep adding on to this. So this project is about complete. And the hope is that once the land is there and once planet life propagates that sand, the marsh will continue to grow on its own. There is another project, the Grand Bayou Marsh Restoration Project, which is going to be completed right next door. They're going to be neighbors. They're essentially going to share a ridge so the hope is that by having these two projects next to each other, they will really be a starting point for this marsh to kind of come back to life. Lachance, what was your impression being out there? I think it was very interesting because there was, um, it was like a sort of calm, sort of peace almost. What I would say was very, very cold that day. So other than the cold, uh, a calm and peace. And then you turn and you do see this heavy machinery. You see a lot of movement that just kind of is, I would, I would say is um, just not what you expected, expected in space. And I think that um, going in learning that it's actually a project to restore the coast. I think that for me, that's what initially I was misconstrued about. I assumed that, you know, like, like now in Louisiana, where everything's so industry-based, is something that's actually harming the environment. It's something that's taking away from it. So for me to learn and to understand that this is a coastal restoration project, I thought that was very interesting. And I think that though it was like some disturbance with the machinery that kind of um, impacted the natural environment in space, I do think it was something very poetic at the same time that you have this thing that you automatically assume would be industry-based actually doing something to help and repair the environment. So mm. that was my big takeaway from it for sure. Delaney, how does this impact the saltwater wedge, which was sort of a threat to New Orleans and other, other population centers last fall? The saltwater wedge was a big story uh, this summer and, and the threat persisted into early January. The saltwater wedge has retreated now uh, to mm. the point where Plaquemines Parish is no longer um, directly threatened by the saltwater coursing through their water treatment systems. And it's very interesting because for these marsh restoration projects, they are participating in the same activities that led to the saltwater intrusion yeah. there is dredging going on and that dredging large scale dredging is what led to the saltwater intrusion mm. we we really invited the gulf of mexico up into the mississippi by making the river so deep so that all of these vessels could get out and, and, and take or get in um because this dredging does not have the goal of making the channel bigger, the goal is to create land on its banks 
they don't have such a devastating impact. Um, and speaking with Connor Hannon, the construction manager, we learned that those borrow areas where they are dredging do fill in back in very quickly. Um, he also said that they typically don't even take, they don't dredge all of the sand that they are allowed to. They, they don't need to dredge because there, there is so much sand reaccumulating. They don't have to go to other borrow spots. They are able to take it all from this one spot and create this 334 acres of new marsh hmm. and it, the area from the Mississippi River that that sand was taken from will fill back in rather quickly. I love that that the borrow areas just fill back in. It's like letting the river do what it was meant to do in the first place, which is really what led to the problem is we, we sort of told the river, no, you don't get to go here anymore. You don't get to go there. We want you to go this way, leading to all <laughs> yeah, sorts the river of problems. it wants to take that sand and it wants to spread it out. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily, well, it doesn't want anything. It's, it's rare. <laughs> but it, nature, naturally, the sediment would be spread out across southern Louisiana. Um, and because we have restricted the river's flow, it is all dumping into the Gulf of Mexico instead of, instead of building these deltaic plains that the ecosystems here really thrive on. So as we've been losing marsh, we've been losing biodiversity, and it's harmed not only ecosystems, but the people who live nearby. Um, and so it's very cool to see this dredging process that is usually reserved for industry being used for a different purpose. Big machines that are just scooping up sand from the bottom of the river and processing them through eight miles of pipe to create new marsh, to bring the marsh back to life where it used to thrive. Mm -hmm. Like Delaney said, we've just, I mean, we've turned the Mississippi River into a fire hose, right? I know we hear that a lot, but the ways we've constrained it uh, from taking its natural course uh, for both flood protection and industry just means it is shooting out into the Gulf at a pace where it can't build up those bayous in that marshland, like she said. Delaney, are we officially, do you know, out of this drought that we were suffering from this year, this last year? Yes. So the, the drought stress has lessened in New Orleans and Plaquemines Parish, but there still is substantial drought in parts of southern Louisiana and northern Louisiana into Mississippi. Um, so even though the saltwater wedge is retreating, there are definitely concerns about the amount of precipitation and how dry the area is. Mm, okay. Winter's not over. Let's just keep our fingers crossed. Thanks, Delaney. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus, education reporter Marta Jusen, photojournalist Lachance Perry, and managing editor Katie Rechtal. Hi, I'm Karen Gadbois, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. The strength of the lens lies in the highly qualified editorial and research staff, as well as the collaborative network of affiliated organizations. 
please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. My daughter's name went here. They grow. My older grandsons went here. It's just a family. It was a family school. Everybody went here. And for them to close down now, I think that's not right. That's Robin Wright, a grandmother of a child at Lafayette Academy. Marta, after receiving an F when last fall's school ratings were announced, Superintendent of New Orleans Public School District Avis Williams announced Lafayette Academy would lose its charter and close. Then within the space of a few days, she reversed that decision and put a proposal on the table to direct run the school instead. Walk us through what's happening here. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely been a kind of a wild ride for parents uh, and families and staff members and students at Lafayette. Um, going into the fall, I don't think anyone expected them to receive enough. I think they maybe thought they would get a D, which would have potentially qualified them to finish out that last year in their charter contract. They just have one year left. Um, so in the late fall, when the uh, superintendent said that you know she wouldn't renew their contract, the school said, okay, we understand you're not going to renew the contract and we've accepted your decision, but you know, that's with the understanding that a new charter is going to come in and operate the school and that students can stay on campus next year. Um, but no one applied to run the school. Mm. And it seems like the superintendent didn't have a plan in place for when that occurred. And this December 19th deadline came, no one had applied um, and not until two weeks later did she say, okay, we're going to have to close the school because no one wants to take it over, um, which is already really pushing in and butting up against uh, enrollment deadlines for students to pick a new school next year. Right. Um, but then when she announced that, that it would close because no one wanted to take it over, a week later she goes a complete 180 and says that the district is actually thinking about and wants to take it over and run it. So not only has this been, you know, communicated very poorly, um, it also, it, it just feels like there's no plan, like there's no one steering the ship. Like why, you should have, it seems like you would have known the date of that deadline that no one else applied to run the school that either the district would or would not run it. Right. So whiplash for the parents, the students, and lots of stress, teachers, everybody. And then this direct run proposal, they haven't done that. And tell us about that proposal. And that still has to be voted on, right? Right. So even that is not set in stone. Um, we know families, you know, could kind of breathe a sigh of relief with the potential that their school would stay open. But they literally could not apply to go to school there next year because it's not yet an option because, like you said, the board hasn't approved it. Um, and you're also right. The district has not direct run a school for a few years um, after Katrina, when the recovery school district came in um, and took over more than 100 schools away from the district, um, it only maintained a handful, which eventually petered down to about five um, in the mid-2010s and then slowly reduced um, to zero as they handed over their last director on um, McDonough 35 to inspire NOLA. Um, and then since then, the district has once stepped in to run a school. It was kind of an emergency situation, um, and they stepped in to run Harney. Um, a couple of years ago. But, you know, I've always wondered, since that Harney situation happened, it is, seems very curious to me that the district isn't prepared um, or has, honestly, I don't want to call it this, but, you know, some kind of strike team to step up if a charter fails or needs them to step in. 
if you are a district of all charter schools, it seems like you should be prepared at any time to have to take over a school. And that could be, um, you know, a financial issue that occurs at the school. We've seen leadership problems um, or, you know, another serious thing that we haven't thought of could arise. Um, so it does seem like the district needs to have the capacity to take over a school in an emergency situation. Yeah. And this is not an emergency situation. And it feels like they're really struggling to kind of develop this plan. Although now they have a couple of weeks to put this proposal into into action, into writing. When you talked about the last time they direct ran schools and it sort of petered out in the mid teens, I think you said. Um, my first instinct when I hear about that, about the, the um, schools being direct run by the district, I would think that they would be under pretty serious pressure to perform at the top of their game um how how were those schools when they were direct running them were they, were they doing a pretty good job with the schools that they were direct running well so that's the kind of the complicated part here is when the state stepped in under the recovery school district which was formed two years before katrina but um right after the storm with the legislative session um before people had even been able to return to the city, the state legislature voted to change what they considered a, a, the score for a failing school. And they created a whole new layer of um, what essentially was a failing district. And so uh, naturally it was targeted at New Orleans. New Orleans was the only district labeled a failing district. And the state then came and stepped in and took over all the failing schools or underperforming schools. So that meant that the schools the district was direct were direct running were the were the good schools were the ones that had performed and had A and Bs. I mean, the whole thing for me, looking at the bigger picture about you know the people can't register for the school yet if they want to go back to Lafayette because they don't know if it's going to exist for sure. So they have to just kind of chill until the summer, which is really stressful for parents, I think, to not know where their kids are going to attend in the fall. That seems like a uh, hard situation, but also the just from looking at the school board, you know, the school board used to be filled with teachers, educators that were good at their craft and were moved into supervisory positions, right? It strikes me that we have a lot of business people who are in the business of education who are at the school, who are at the school headquarters right now, hmm. not necessarily people who have been educators. If you're at the school board, and you, you guys can't put to, can't immediately say we can come in and help this school do better. Well, then that explains why they're not monitoring the grades and saying, oh, this school's a D. Let's step in and give them mm -hmm. some gentle help to mm -hmm. get them up where, to where they need to be. It's all about contracts and business and portfolios and not very much about uh, curriculum and education to me. That's what it seems like anyway. And that's long been a criticism of this district, like Katie's saying, that they're only looking at those grades when contracts are up for renewals. They're not stepping in and saying, how can we help get this F school to a T or this D school to a C? They put it, it's all put on the charters, and that's kind of the sales pitch of autonomy in a, in a competitive district, but it comes with a lot of challenges. And mm. it, sometimes it's hard to see how the the district is handling that, you know, accountability piece um, when it, it kind of it can kind of feel willy nilly if your school is enough and it can stay open or if this other school is enough and it closes it, it, you know, sometimes it feels like there's not consistency. Is it reasonable to think that a charter organization group might come in 
and uh, change their mind and say they'll take over Lafayette now? Or is that over? Doors well, closed. So I think what has happened now is that no one did do that. No one applied for it. Um, and I think there's a, a handful of factors there. Um, one is that we're facing an enrollment shortage in the city. So yep. for a charter group to come and take on another school when they have empty seats in the schools they're currently running, um, I don't think that's like a financially appealing situation. I'd probably rather have those students come into their school. Um, so that's kind of the business angle or aspect of of this stuff, which is also part of an all-charter district. One other interesting thing at play here is that the district, part of this, you know, what they're calling a right-sizing effort is yeah. to get the most kids into the best buildings. And Lafayette is a really good building. It's a historic building. Uh, it's in a great location. And they put a ton of money into it over the last um, 20 years. So that's a building they want to keep in operation. But now if they're closing a school, they're going to have to you know, try to convince or find another school to relocate into that um, better facility. So to, there's just a ton of moving pieces. Is it, and it's likely that the school board will vote to allow the district to direct run? Does that you know, seem... I'm not entirely sure. The, the board okay. does seem to be in support of basically giving these families a, a chance, a year to figure it out. Um, but we also know that if you are only promising to keep a school open for a year, mm. that's all you're guaranteeing at the moment. That might not be appealing to families who are looking for stability or teachers who right. want to know that they're going to have a job in two years. So, you know, there's really there's a lot to think about there. And and it's going to because this is kind of their their first startup in a long time, um, they're going to have to put a lot of money into it on the, you know, on this this front end here to, to pick new curriculum and to develop policies and to hire people and, you know, update things that they haven't touched in 10 years because they haven't been running schools. OK. All right, Marta, thank you. Thank you. Okay, Katie, there was a parade going down St. Claude Avenue again on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It hadn't been uh, on this route for a long time. Tell us about it. It returned, you know, before Katrina, the St. Claude, Claude route of the parade basically spanned all the downtown in New Orleans. It went from the lower nine all the way up to Mahalia Jackson. And that's where the buses would park and pick up the kids after the parades. So it was a very long route. And there would be people all along that route with mm -hmm. grills and watching their babies being the majorette in the band for the first time. Um, you know, checking to make sure their, their kid can play the F horn. You know, that band's I just it was had every band in the city was in that parade at the time, and um, it was really an extravagant event. So after Katrina, that just stopped, and they start they tried. I think there was one year where somebody sort of tried it, and then they now the the city's official parade goes um, up by the MLK bus, which is on um, Claiborne Avenue. If you don't, if you don't go too fast when you're speeding toward MLK Boulevard <laughs> on, on Claiborne, headed downtown, you can see MLK's bus rising above the the um, road on the right hand side, and that is where they have a little. They've always had a little ceremony there in his honor, but the parade has not been the same. It's not the same kind of. Um, community event that it was so last year 
MLK School, which used to have its own little tiny parade. Well, not, not so tiny, but like an, at least it was a very neighborhood parade in the Lower Nine before Katrina. They looked at this and decided that they were going to reestablish the San Claude route. So they very intentionally had their parade start in the Lower Nine and go up St. Claude. And it was sort of a big deal for people who were trying to have that route revived. This year, too, it was a big deal philosophically for people who understood what was happening. Mm. But because of some parade route issues with policing and getting the escorts properly in place, they didn't really get to announce it until, like, Wednesday or Thursday is when they were able to actually get everybody going. So it was it came kind of fast and there weren't as many people along the route as there usually would have been, I think. Will it ultimately, uh, if it if it takes hold again, and it sounds like it, there's every reason to, to feel that it will, um, will, will it sort of eclipse the official city celebration? Yeah, I think it will for a lot of people. For I think people can't, you know, really it is, um, it is kind of a preview for carnival for people to a certain extent as far as they're taking their kids to, to play in the band. There's a lot of parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and neighbors and stuff who are watching for their kids in the parade and making sure that they're performing the way they should and that they're that their tights are are fit that the tights <laughs> fit and you know all that stuff right yeah. and the band directors are all watching like they're really like you can see even during the MLK parade there are percussion people coming around to make to reposition drums during the stop to make sure that they have that right for when Mardi Gras rolls around and they're you know they'll be parading some of them every weekend some of them every night right so it does feel like it's it's a fun preview for Carnival, and you can see which bands really have potential, which ones have a new director that's really pushing them, which has, <laughs> which sometimes somebody might have a new brass coordinator at the band who's blowing them out of their the woodwork this this year. You know, you can see that, or like when somebody had when Carver debuted eight drum majors across the front of their band, we saw that at MLK Day, so we knew it was coming, right? So those kinds of things you start to see. And so I think it's really like the way it's almost, I mean, I like Carnival and the floats and stuff, but the marching bands are one of the highlights of Carnival parades. And this is like Carnival, but without all the floats in the middle. So like, as far as like being able to see that as a preview, it's pretty, I think it's just really a draw. Yeah. And I'm sure it was, really a sweet feeling for for those who remembered it pre-Katrina and how what a beautiful day that had been for everybody. Yeah, I saw people posting about, oh my goodness, this was this mm. was an MLK parade and then people say well it's not the official parade. Hmm. You know, there was a lot of sort of uh grimacing about that it, it's not the official city route anymore, but you know, it's sort of like, well, at least somebody's bringing it back. That was the sentiment, I think. There's something so special too about having a parade in your neighborhood, right? Like anyone who's if you got to go uptown for everything, then you got to know someone, you got to know where the bathroom is. And but to be able to just rock, walk down your block is such a such a nice feeling to have it close to your house. Yeah, I remember like there were some sounds that are very distinctly carnival that I was remembering as I was standing because it was you know there weren't a lot of people along 
the route when it started. It started to gather as word spread. But I was down toward the bottom of the route, and I saw, I heard the majoress with their little shoes. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I thought, oh, wow, okay, this is it. You know, this is it. And the drums with their little, like, you know, that that, that stuff is very carnival sounding, right? It draws people. You start to hear those sounds echoing through the streets and you go find it. If you're walking around and you hear something like that, you beeline to where it is. And no matter where what's happening, you'll always be entertained and surprised and delighted. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I can't imagine that this, the city can't really compete, I mean, mm. with this kind of parade if they can really get the sort of if they can get enough bands to really feel like they got the city's bands showing up there and the little dance groups in between, I mean, they're, they're going to blow it up, blow the city's parade out of the water for sure. Why don't they just work together? I don't know. I'm, I know that there in, in years past that there were people who had pushed on the city to try to reestablish that route and it just didn't happen. So I don't, I, I, I don't know why that hasn't happened, but I think, among people who live along the route, it's popular enough that it feels like it's going to succeed with or without City Hall support, you know? Mm -hmm. It just doesn't have the city officials linking arms across the front. That's the only thing it doesn't have. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus, education reporter Marta Jusen, photojournalist LaChance Perry, and Lens editor Katie Rechtal. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.